So I thought this morning I'd preach from the Bible. Just to keep you guessing. <laughs> uh, but we're making our way through the Old Testament using Hebrews chapter 11 as our roadmap. The names found in the Hall of Faith have been our study since the fall. But I've got to be honest with you, this, this week as I was studying our hero of the week, I found myself talking to God and saying, how did this guy get into the Bible? Like, I understand many of the Old Testament folks who got into the Bible, but I, I didn't get it while I was studying this guy's story earlier in the week. Uh, and, and I feel like in the Old Testament, it was a little easier to be a really messed up person and get into the Old Testament. But then, in Hebrews 11, for the author of Hebrews to look back, and this is a select list that the New Testament decides to look back and pick these names from the Old Testament, this guy gets into the New Testament too! And I'm like, he got into both Testaments, and I kind of am feeling like he doesn't even belong in the Bible. So needless to say, I had to really pray and say, Lord, what's this guy doing in the Old Testament? What's he doing in the New? And what on earth am I supposed to tell your people about this man? It's been a wrestling match all week long. I think what makes this guy's story hard is if he was just a fool, I could tell you he was a fool, and I could preach about how not to be a fool. If he was just a faithful saint, I could tell you he was a saint. I could preach about how to be faithful. The problem is he was both. He was a fool, a sinful, reprehensible, cannot believe he did this fool. And he was walking by faith and God used him. So then I started to feel like, okay, God, I'm kind of glad you put some people like that in the Bible because that's how I feel a lot, not all faith. Not all fool, but a mixture of the two. Do you ever feel that way? I'm glad God puts people in the Bible who are part fool, part faith to teach us. This morning our hero is Jephthah. Jephthah. You want to try saying that? Say Jephthah. And the title is, When the Faithful are Foolish. Let's pray, and then we will talk through this cautionary tale. Father, I know that as we walk by faith, we must be careful to avoid foolish thoughts and foolish choices. I know, Lord, that you have commemorated the lives of so many faithful. You have also used the foolish to warn us. And now here in one body, we find Jephthah who teaches us about both. Show us from his faith what we should imitate. Show us from his foolishness what we should avoid. Speak truth to your people and guide us as we walk by faith. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. Okay, book of Judges, chapter 10. Book of Judges, chapter 10. Uh, The story again starts out in chapter 10, verse 6, with the Israelites acting like the Israelites. (laughs) Chapter 10, verse 6, it says, The people of Israel again, everybody say again, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Wow. This is post Noah, post-Moses, post-Joshua, they've got a lot of good Sunday school curriculum, okay? In Abraham's day, he didn't have very many stories going up on that flannel graph, all right? But by this time, they had some pretty basic things figured out about God. But they, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. How bad did it get? They served the Baals, the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods gods of Moab, the gods of Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord 
did not serve him. Hey, they served all the local gods except their own god. That's how bad it got. Oh, you got a god? Bring him in. Sure, little idol, I'll set him up. I got a shelf for him. You got gods too? Bring him in. What about the holy and awesome God, the righteous one who led you out of, hey, we've been there, we've done that. And here the next generation of followers in Israel were abandoning the God who saved them. Verse 7, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Notice God's opinion of all of the other gods is he gets angry when people worship them. I know in this day and age it's very in very, uh, it's in right now to be kind of okay with other people worshiping other gods. It sounds kind of sentimental to be like, well, you know, who am I to talk to them about their beliefs as long as they really believe it? How? Yeah, but then there's one God up in heaven, glorious and mighty and holy, who is the only one up there. And he looks down and sees people worshiping gods that really aren't gods, and he gets furious because they're robbing him of the glory due only him. He is creator. He is holy. He's awesome. He gets angry when the worship due him is taken away from him. Not only, it's not like he needs an ego fix or anything. It's not good for the people. Because they're being lied to. He's angry. Verse 7, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. They crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years. Wow. How many of you are 18 years old? Raise your hand up if you're 18 years old. 18 years old. Raise your hand up. Because it'd be like your whole lifetime. Because of what your parents have been doing, misery in your lifetime. They oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. So this is on the east side of the Jordan, for those geography lovers in the room. East side of the Jordan, uh, that's kind of what we're dealing with here. It's called Gilead, but there's some tribes over there too. And then there's these other folk who are creating trouble. The Ammonites crossed the Jordan even to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim. So Israel was, listen, severely distressed. This is a portrait right now. We're going to learn a lesson of faith here. This is a portrait of the misery God will bring into your life and into my life when as his people we turn on him and sin. God will be the author of misery, of severe distress, of pressure in your life when you turn on him. And his anger is kindled. Why is this happening to me? Why is it so hard? Why is it so pain? Well, maybe if, if you're turning on the Lord, maybe God's the one bringing the misery into your life. He'd been doing it here in Israel for 18 years because they rebelled. And they were worshiping false gods. God's patience was also running out. And so in verse 10, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we've sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Interesting response. Verse 11, the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand? Remember what I did? Remember all those people who I saved you from and, and you crushed them? And now you're worshiping their gods? Verse 13, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, this is, this is catastrophic. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. You know that if God's patience runs out on you, you know that if you play the game long enough, you know that when you turn with 
half-hearted repentance and say, help, help, he may say no. You made this mess. You're sitting in this mess. I'm not getting you out of it. Go to the things that have gotten you here. See how they do. This is a very stern and rare place for God's people to find themselves with God. This is a portrait of divine discipline. What is God doing? Well, He's trying to awaken them to their need for total repentance and relational renewal to God. Jot this down. Here's the first faith lesson we learn here. Faith responds humbly to divine discipline. Faith responds humbly to divine discipline. When the God who made you and who loves you will not put up with your sin anymore and He puts misery into your life and pressure and you feel crushed under the weight of it, then you turn with half-hearted repentance and say, okay, I'll give up half my sin. Okay, I'll be kind of sorry. Okay, maybe I'll do... He says, no, not enough. Faith responds humbly to divine discipline. And God, as a loving father, will discipline every one of his children because that's what loving parents do. How many of you are parents in the room? Raise your hand up if you're a parent in the room. Okay, now keep it up if you've got kids under the age of 10. Under the age of 10, okay, self-included, got kids under the age of 10, good. You know what the word discipline means, am I right? Because if you don't discipline your children, they ain't making it to their next birthday. All right. The best I heard recently was a mom who, who shared this story. She said, yeah, my kids invented a, uh, a new game this morning. It's called, they called it Scissors Tag. Improving upon the, the time-tested idea of running with scissors, they add to it everyone running with scissors and trying to make contact with the scissors as you're running. It's called Scissors Tag. So she found out about this and she took action, right, as a loving parent would. Give me the scissors right now. Get over here. Give me the scissors. Well, she got all the scissors except the youngest. The youngest was kind of running around. Well, he didn't have scissors. And she's like, where's your scissors? And he goes, in my jammies. They had fallen into his jammies. He had the footy pajamas. They were somewhere in there running around with scissors in his jammies playing scissors tag. What does a loving parent do? Nothing. Wrong answer. And, and teenagers, you, your parents are in your life to provide loving, caring correction. They see things you don't. God's given them authority to put up boundaries in your life that will protect you. And that's what parents do. That's what God wants parents to do. Raise your children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Well, this is what God does. God will discipline not just a few, but every one of his children. Every one of them. Because he knows we're not perfect yet, and he is against the sin that creeps into our heart. Hey, if you get home today this afternoon, you open the fridge and something stinks, you reach in the back and you find leftovers from like Christmas, okay, you're going to throw out half of it or you're going to throw out all of it? Well, what, I got rid of half of it. Okay, if you open the milk and it's been bad for a month and it's all curdly and chunky, and you're going to pour out half of it and use the rest, or are you going to get rid of all of it? All of it. God looks into your heart. He sees sin that's stinking up your soul. What's he going to do? Well, I'll, she got rid of half of it. I'm good with that. This is divine discipline. When Israel cried out to the Lord, God said, not good enough. I'm not taking your half-hearted response. You need to go all the way. So it says in verse 14, go and cry out to them. Verse 15, and the people of Israel said to the Lord, we've sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. 
Okay, that's good. A humble attitude toward divine discipline is, Lord, as long as it takes, as hard as it gets. Can you honestly say that? If you've, if you've blown it and God's bring, if he's brought discipline into your life, can you say, Lord, as long as it takes, as hard as it gets, I'm okay. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them. About time. They wanted the idols on their shelf and they wanted God to deliver them. And he became impatient. I love this. He became impatient over the misery of Israel. God got fed up with watching them suffer. We see an attribute of God here called mercy. Mercy is a form of love, but mercy is when, um, when an awesome God looks into the life of one of his children and sees suffering. Mercy sees and meets us in our misery and leads us out of it. That's mercy. And this shows something that is true of our God God is merciful and he will meet us in our misery and lead us out. Do you know because this is true of our God, in his word, he has, God has stamped an expiration date on every one of your trials. Do you know that? There's not a trial in your life that he will allow to endure forever. You're one day closer today to the end of it than you were yesterday. Some of them will live with you through this life, but none of them get to pass to the next life. Are you glad for that? It's because God's merciful. It's, it's because he's merciful. And any trial you bring to him, any pain, any suffering here, any suffering that you have caused yourself, that you bring it, take it away, Lord, get rid of it. His answer is not just sometimes, not just, it's always yes. It's only a matter of time when the trial expires. So how do we respond when we've caused the misery, when we're at fault? How do we humbly respond to divine discipline? Well, we kind of learn from the Israelites here a few things. God's not satisfied with half measures. And in the book of Hebrews, there's also a few more uh, suggestions on how to respond to discipline. So you can jot these down first. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. He says, have you forgotten the word that exhorts you as sons? Why are you so surprised? <laughs> are you surprised? Have you forgotten what the Lord's already said? He will treat you like sons. Don't be surprised. Um, God will take you as you are at salvation, but he won't leave you that way. You're under construction until the day you die, or the trumpet sounds. God's got more work to do in your heart. If you think you're one of those Christians who God's pretty much done with, he's just brushing the dust off you. All right, first of all, everyone around you knows that's false. And second, God knows it's false. Don't be surprised when God starts digging around in the dirt of your heart. When he starts planting new things and getting rid of rocks. and Don't be surprised. Second, don't be dismissive. Don't be dismissive. It says in the Bible, it says, don't despise the Lord's discipline. Don't despise it. Um, when I was a kid, this, this is a famous story of, of little Ryan, but when I was a kid, about yay big, my aunt took me to a shoe store, to shoe shop. And in the shoe store, I was more interested in actually knocking the shoes off the shelf than I was of shopping for the shoes. So I'd run around, bam, bam, bam. So my aunt was like chasing me around, Ryan, come here, get over here. She got down real nice, and she's like, all right, listen, you need to stop knocking the shoes off of the, sh- off of the shelves, okay? So she stood up, and as the story goes, uh, apparently I looked up at her and smiled, 
and then went like this and ran down an entire row of shoes and knocked them all off the shelf. The whole row. So she took me out into the hallway and no one knows what she said. But let's just say I didn't knock any more shoes off the shelf that day. Hey, when God disciplines you, um, do you get it? Do you receive it? Do you... And it's not like he's going to open up you know, the clouds and shout down at you. He may use a friend of yours or a spouse or a child or a sermon, but it's clear God's saying something to me. And do you stiffen up and harden your heart and stiff arm the Lord or do you allow the Lord to speak into your life? Hey, don't be surprised. Hey, don't be dismissive. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord is what it says in the book of Hebrews. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. That's the third sub-point. Don't be deflated. Don't be surprised. Don't be dismissive. Don't be deflated. God must really hate me. I'm out of the family because he's doing this and it's so hard and he must not like me. No, don't believe lies about God. In fact, this is proof of God's love because he's treating you as a child, as one of his. So faith responds humbly to divine discipline. Don't be surprised. Don't be dismissive. Don't be deflated. Reading on. Israel responded well, and God was about to go to work. So check out verse 17. It says, Then the Ammonites were called to arms. They encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. The people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. They kind of have this tough guy contest. Who's going to be it? Who's going to lead the charge? Anybody want to step up? And they're all like, No, no. They're scary. So the elders didn't know what to do. Meet our hero. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. Mighty warrior. But he was the son of a prostitute. Interesting background. Tough as they come. Tall, big. He's got muscles. He's got scars. He's got, well, he probably got picked on on the playground a lot if his mother was a prostitute, right? So he got toughened up. Mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. So he had a whole region named after him. His dad was big time. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Now he's angry. His own... His own half-brothers got rid of him. Hey, you're not getting any of the inheritance. Get out of here. They chased him off. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers, and they lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. I kind of imagine Jephthah as being like tough and having a rowdy, uh, lawless, uh, degenerate, uh, rebellious group around him. So archaeologists have actually discovered like, like sketches of the of the the gang that was like with Jephthah. So we've got, here's that, here's that picture. That was one of his, all right, and there's another one here. That's them. Uh, and uh, I like that guy. I kind of imagine Jephthah as being the equivalent today of like a, you know, an outlaw. Like tough and, and he's got this group around, you don't mess with them. And, and uh, the NIV translates them as like adventurers. It almost sounds like it's too favorable. They were like pillaging and raiding and, and they were like mercenaries, okay? So I thought, all right, who am I going to cast to play the part of Jephthah in my head this week? Like, he's got to be like biker type tough with tattoos and stuff, but maybe like foreign with like an accent. So I picked this guy. I picked, uh, 
I picked Ivan. That's from Iron Man 2. He's playing the part of Jephthah in my head. Now, the elders of Israel were like, we're getting beat up. We need a tough guy with his gang. And they went, they went to him. I wouldn't mess with him. Would you mess with him? He's got electric whips. So Jephthah has a rough crowd. He's living a rough life. And the men who were with him, the translation here says they were lawless or empty. And they rallied to him. And let's read more about what goes on next. In chapter 11, verse 8. Actually, I'm sorry, verse 4. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. So nobody stepped up for their like, strongman tournament. Nobody entered. So they're like, well, we've got to go get him. What do you mean we've got to go get him? He's going to be mad at us. We like, allowed his brothers to cheat him out of the inheritance. Well, we've got to go get him. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Probably the elders were involved in this legal dispute. Probably they were involved in it. Uh, Sibling rivalry here. And so Jephthah has a grudge. Why have you come now when you're in distress? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That's why we've turned to you now. That you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and... Okay, listen now. We start to see his faith. And the Lord gives them over to me. I will be your head. The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us. So now they involve God in this transaction. If we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Um... We're meeting our hero here. There's a few things we should observe about him. We're building up to the second point here, but I want to make sure that we get this character figured out so that we understand the story and the lesson. We're supposed to notice that Jephthah could have, in bitterness and anger and rage, chosen not to come back to help his people. Jephthah could have been hurt and wounded by his own family. And he could have allowed them to ruin God's plan for his life. But you see, God didn't give his family that power. Because here the Lord is showing up in the form of these elders, giving Jephthah the chance to come back, giving him the chance to serve as a mighty deliverer in Israel. And Jephthah had a choice to make. He could have chosen in bitterness to turn. He could have felt like he was useless to God. He could have felt and his emotions betrayed and abandoned and rejected and cheated out of property and money. And and he could have chosen to not play his part of faith in the story of Israel. But instead, he decided to come back. Now we also have to notice that he's, he's negotiating for more power. He's also indicting the elders. So we learn that Jephthah is political. He's got self-interest. He's pretty articulate as he's about to go to the enemy and he's about to try and negotiate with them and show them where they're wrong. They think they have a claim on the land and he, repeat, he tells them all the history that's involved and tells them you do not have a claim on this land. He's very smart. He's also resourceful. He's persuasive. Uh, he's tough. He's rallied a band of men around him and he will, he will be able to be influential in the nation. He's knowledgeable about history and he does have a measure of faith. We're supposed to notice all of this about him. Much of this is praiseworthy. Much of this is praiseworthy. In verse 27 of chapter 11, skipping ahead, 
Verse 27, Jephthah says to the enemy, I therefore have not sinned against you. You do me wrong by making war on me. Listen, the Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. This is a tough, mighty warrior who's like, yeah, I'm going to take you out. No, that's not what he said. The Lord, judge between you and me. Because of it, in verse 29, it says, The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. He had the Spirit. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And he was walking in the Spirit. He was empowered and clothed with strength from on high. And by faith, God was going to use him to do something astonishing. But then something happened. It was tragic. It happened in a moment. Says this, verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, this is where it gets disturbing. Jot this down and then we'll unpack it. But faith responds humbly to divine discipline. And second, faith avoids foolish disobedience. Faith avoids foolish disobedience. What happened here was, Jephthah was not thinking rightly about God. His foolish thinking led to foolish choices. Even though he was walking by faith on a road God had empowered him to travel, Something came out of his mouth that was foolish. The vow, let it be clear, the vow was, when I get back, Lord, if you give me the victory, anything that comes out of my door, any one that comes out of my door, I'll sacrifice to you. Now, some scholars want to soften this up by saying, well, he probably thought an animal would come out first, like a goat. Why? Because it seems pretty unthinkable for this person who's in the New Testament Hall of Faith to seriously, in advance of a battle, offer up a human sacrifice. Does that seem pretty unthinkable to you? But the best interpretation is that's exactly what he did. Knowingly. He Was it fear that maybe he hadn't quite persuaded the Lord to get on his program yet? What was it? We don't know, but there was this momentary lapse of faith There was a foolish view of God where he saw God as this political military ally. Jephthah, the politician, had to somehow secure this God's allegiance before going out to battle. How could he do it? Well, with all these other gods in the area, what he had observed previously was, and this is elsewhere in Scripture, there were some times where somebody would offer up a a human who's precious to them to try and secure the favor of a deity in battle. And that's exactly what he did. We don't know who he thought would come out of that door, but it likely was not an animal and it likely was a human. Maybe he thought it would be a servant or who knows. His foolish view of God was that God was a military political ally who he had to somehow manipulate to get on his side. He was already filled with the Spirit. Was he lacking anything? No. But because he felt like it wasn't enough, God wasn't enough, his spirit isn't enough, the promise he's made in the past to establish his people and drive out is not enough, because he felt that wasn't enough, he had to do something foolish to try and get more spiritual advantage. 
we're learning something here. If we believe foolish, unbiblical things about our God, we will make foolish choices. Okay? Jephthah should have thought about his God as a loving father who wants to surround the nation with protection and favor. Jephthah should have thought of God as a mighty king who had the strength to put his enemies in Jephthah's hand, as he had already done in the past. But he had a wrong definition of God and a warped view of how to secure God's favor. Faith avoids foolish disobedience. And Jephthah, as he was walking by faith, now did something incredibly foolish. We learned something here, too, about our walk of faith. There are certain things that God's Spirit doesn't do. Certain things that God's Spirit doesn't do. Hey, if you are a born-again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have 100% of God's Spirit dwelling in you at the moment of salvation. Did you catch that? Just as God's Spirit was with him, God's Spirit is in you. You can't get any more of the Spirit than you got at salvation. But you can do certain things that are foolish. The Spirit doesn't do things in you that you are responsible for. Here's the first one. God's Spirit doesn't study God's Word for me. God's Spirit doesn't study God's Word for me. And ignorance of God's Word will lead me to foolish choices. If I just don't know what God's Word says about something, I'm going to make foolish choices and God's Spirit won't stop it. Um, Ephesians 5, 8-9 says, Walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Do you know in Proverbs chapter 2 it says, Your search for the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God and His will, your search should resemble as if you're searching for hidden treasure. Okay, so in my generation, the, the, the like searching for hidden treasure movie of the day was Goonies. Okay, how many of you have seen the Goonies and you're going, right? And well, those kids got that map every step. Two, three, four. Okay, we got to turn here. Okay, we got to go here. Why? Because one night Willie had a treasure and they had to find it. And the Bible draws on that hidden treasure, searching for hidden treasure, and that should resemble your handling of this. Oh, wait, it says we got to turn here. Okay, I got to turn here. I got to go there. Oh, wait, nope, stop. Okay, now I got to turn this. The Bible also says, call out for insight. Raise your voice for understanding. Give it to me. I need to know what your will is. It's loud. It's active. And, and if you don't get a knowledge of God's will for whatever it is that you're going through, you could make a wrong turn. And God's Spirit doesn't study God's Word for you. God's Spirit also, jot this down, doesn't contradict God's Word to you. Doesn't contradict God's Word to you. Yeah, but I've got peace about this decision. I prayed about it. Yeah, but God's Word says that it's wrong. Yeah, but my girlfriends got around me and told me that what I'm doing is the right thing to do. Yeah, well, God's Word tells you it's wrong, period. Uh, yeah, but other people have done it. Yeah, God's Spirit is never going to lead you to contradict God's Word. And whatever peace you find on that path is not from God. If you are out of line with God's Word, you are out of line with God's will. And you can't bring God the Spirit in to give you an amen to a sinful decision. He was full of God's Spirit, but faith must avoid foolish disobedience. And likewise, believers must also avoid foolish disobedience. Well, let's read on and see what happens next in verse 32. Uh, verse 32, it says, So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites, to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aurora to the neighborhood of Minnith, 20 cities, and as far as Abel-Karamim. 
was a great blow. That's translated literally a great slaughter. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. But notice how this story is told. The author here is, is not even telling us one of these amazing 20 victories that he had. 20 city, two, three, what, 20 and oh they went. And, and the author is just grazing past that. Yep, the Lord did it just as he said, of course, but, but there's something else we need to know. Verse 34, then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzpah. Behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes. That's a sign of outrage and shock. And said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. She said to him, My father, you've opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out from your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. Wow, what's going on here? The first thing he saw when he got home was his beautiful young daughter. They married young back then, who knows, early teens, maybe not even yet. She was the first thing that came out, happy to see dad, heard about the victory, and and Jephthah is cut to the heart, realizing that this vow that he made now will cost him his daughter. And as readers, we, we are shocked and troubled and horrified at what is about to happen. And it leaves us wondering, is this supposed to be happening? Well, the Bible is clear. Deuteronomy 18.10 forbids this behavior. This is sin. This is not something that the Lord would honor. This is not something that the Lord would expect from him. But he made a vow. Well, in Leviticus 5 and in Numbers 30, there are some conditions for the Lord forgiving a vow, a rash vow, or that puts others in jeopardy. And, and Jephthah is either incredibly ignorant of God's word, and he didn't know, this vow shouldn't have been made, and he could get out of it. Or he knew, and he was just mixing the practices of the other local gods in with his worship of the one true God. We don't know. But we do know that he should not have done it. We do know that it is sin, black and white. We know that God did not step in. One scholar says in a powerful way that, that God issues a punishing silence on the foolishness of this man. The fact that he would do it, the fact that he would think it's okay, and God is silent. We're supposed to be upset and we're supposed to be perplexed by this. The original readers would have read this and thought, what a fool, what a sinful fool. And in the days of Judges, it says everyone did as, as they saw right in their own eyes. This is a portrait of depravity. This is a portrait of rebellion and sin. And even his response when he sees his daughter, you have troubled me, you have brought me low. Uh, you made the dumb vow. What's with the, oh, what you did to me? Why'd you make the dumb vow? 
That also reveals the character of this man. What happens next? Well, verse 37, she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity. So that just kind of is the epitome of her stage of life. Uh, She's weeping because of the life she will never have, meaning getting married and having a family and actually becoming a grown-up. I and my companion. So he said, go, and then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And Notice how her own view of God is warped because Daddy didn't teach her right. She thinks, oh, well, he made the vow and God gave the victory, so I guess I'm stuck. And in her own warped view, she thinks she's honoring God, but she's not. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament for the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. It became a custom to mourn for her in Israel because of what this man did. Some scholars say, oh, well, he didn't really kill her. He just kind of devoted her over to virginity for life. No, he did what he vowed to do. He killed his own daughter. Because he wasn't thinking rightly about God. He tried to manipulate him in a moment of fear. And then he did something God's word told him not to do. Faith avoids foolish disobedience. Faith avoids foolish disobedience. And believers, we need to hear this. If we have a warped view of God, or if we have a poor understanding of God's word, we are going to do foolish things that bring pain into our life and into the lives of others. Even if we're walking by faith in a general sense, foolishness will harm us. Christians who mix faith and foolishness will have consequences. We will reap what we sow. And if we add foolishness into our walk of faith in any area of our life that's unguarded or unsurrendered to the Lord, God will not always cancel that out. Hey, Christians, we can make foolish financial choices. We can plunge into debt. We can refuse to rein in our spending. And it will bring pain and suffering to our family. Even if in general we're walking by faith in other areas. We can make foolish relational choices. Going to a Christian school. I'm going to a Christian church. I'm not really dating a Christian, but hey. hey, That's a foolish relational choice. And if you say I do to a man who the Lord said you should not marry, there's going to be a lifetime of suffering that may lie ahead of you. And God might not save you from that. Foolishness will lead to suffering. You can make a foolish career choice or or just go about your career in a way that draws you away from regular devotion to the Lord. Leaders in the church can make foolish leadership decisions. You may have been a part of a church where good, well-meaning, respectable, faithful, godly men make foolish choices that harm the church. And Jephthah shows us what faith can do, and he shows us what foolishness can do. And we can repeat both of what we see in his life. Therefore, there's a conclusion here, this third point, which is all application and will come quickly. Faith is the only way for God's people to harness spiritual power. Jot that down. Faith is the only way for God's people to harness spiritual power. Realistically, I'm not really afraid that some of you are going to go out today and in the middle of the week you're going to, like Jephthah, make some sort of a rash vow like, Lord, if you give me the job, I'll sacrifice my daughter. You're, okay, you're probably not going to literally, I would hope, you know, 
do what he did, but I think there are some ways where we can act like him foolishly. Um, So I made a list here briefly of foolish ways that we today could try and harness spiritual power. Okay, And if we use these in addition to faith, it's foolish and it will bring hardship. First, deals. Write that down. Deals with God. God, if you do this, I'll do that. You ever done this before? Lord, if you do this, if I really need, I need the job. I, I want the girl. I, if you do this, oh, I'll do this for you, Lord. Or, uh, the problem with making deals for God is you're trying to manipulate him through conditional obedience. You know, like a dog. Give me the bone and I'll do the trick. I'll sit. I'll jump. I'll lay down. I'll roll. My dog's smart, okay? dog's real smart. He knows how to lay down. He knows how to roll over. He knows how to speak. But if I don't have a treat in my hand, he's, what? I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Give me the bone. I'll do the trick. Here, okay, and this is what we do with God. Why? Because we think we've got to somehow manipulate him. Like, okay, I'm going to hold back my obedience in an effort to manipulate you to give me what I want. And we go even further when in our deal with God, we're not we're no longer bargaining. We are demanding. Lord, you, you better do this. If you don't do this, Lord, right? And if you see someone who's in a conditional relationship with the Lord, Lord, save my marriage, and then he doesn't save it. Lord, give me the job, and then he doesn't give it. Lord, heal me, and then he doesn't. Bring my child back, and then he doesn't. Guess what happens if you've got a conditional relationship with the Lord? You step back, and you walk. And it's foolish and you bring suffering on your own life. Deals with God. It's a foolish way to try and harness spiritual power. Second, superstition. Superstition. It's foolish to be superstitious. Now, pro athletes, they're kind of funny. They're like the most superstitious people on the planet. Have you read about pro athletes and their superstitions? Like, was it Wade Boggs who used to eat only chicken? That's the secret. It's only chicken. I just got to keep eating chicken. I'm going to keep winning. Uh, there's stories of like, who's that pitcher? Who, he would never touch the baseline on the way back to his dugout. He would leap over it, uh, and he would slam the rosin bag into the, into the dirt. Why? Because he was superstitious. That's the way. Or you hear pro athletes writing something in the dirt before they go up to bat. Or there's that basketball player who like, wears the five pairs of socks to the game. His lucky socks. Got to wear his lucky socks. Why? <laughs> because superstitious. You know, it's like the performance-hancing drugs aren't enough. I also have to wear my five pairs of lucky socks to the court. To win. Okay. Superstition is foolish. Okay. Well, there's one exception. Whatever the Blackhawks are doing, they can keep doing it. Am I right? Okay. Wear your lucky dentures or grow your lucky mullet or whatever it takes. You keep winning. Superstition is foolish. Don't be superstitious. Athletes crossing themselves obsessively or you're not adding anything to your faith, if you have superstitions, it's foolish. Uh, idolatry is the third one. Idolatry. Idolatry. It's foolish to be idolatrous. It's foolish to be idolatrous. Uh, listen, I don't know your church tradition, but listen. Don't talk to dead people. Talk to the one who died and rose again. Don't talk to saints. Don't talk to Jesus' mom. Don't talk about your dead relatives as if they're here and watching over you and helping you in some way. They're not. They've got much better things to be doing on the streets of gold, okay? They're not here. 
They're not powerful. They don't hear you. They can't do anything for you. All of that is superstitious and it could become idolatry if you're not careful. It will take you away from looking at the only one who can hear you and help you. You're not increasing your power in the spiritual realm in any way when you talk to or about dead people. They're dead. The Lord is alive. Talk to Him. Deals, superstition, idolatry. Celebrity is the next one. Celebrity is the next one. Well, if I get a holy man who, who can talk to God for me, a living, living now, living icon, if I could like get that healer on the TV to send me his miracle handkerchief or that bottle of magic water, then I'll have true spiritual power. Um, no, you're, you're duped. You're duped. You're foolish. It's a foolish thing to think that the messenger can give you power that the message can't. All right? The message is the power. If you believe the truth found in Scripture, you have access into the throne room of God 24-7. Come boldly into the throne room of grace to find help in your time of need. Well, no, i got to go get this guy. He's got to go in there first and talk to God for me, right? No, no faith healer. No priest, no cardinal, no pope, no letter to him will give you any advantage in the spiritual realm that you don't already have in Christ. And turning to those things will make you think foolish thoughts and do foolish things, and you will bring suffering into your own life and into the lives of others. Faith avoids foolish disobedience. Faith is the only way to harness spiritual power. Not deals, not superstition, not idolatry, not celebrity. Finally, not a cult. A cult. This may go... It'd be obvious, but the word occult in Latin means secret. This would be the New Age practices of perhaps tarot cards or psychic readers or Ouija boards or horoscopes. Or it's, all, it's all foolish. It's all foolish because you're turning away from the power you already have in the gospel to something that either isn't a power or is less powerful or will do more damage to you than you can possibly imagine. Do you see now why Jephthah was a tough one for me to figure out? Do you see how his faith and the victory led to Israel's peace and freedom? Do you see how we're supposed to notice that about him and we're supposed to emulate that? But do you see his foolishness and his sin and his reprehensible conduct? Do you see how we're supposed to know not to do that as God's people? Do you see both of those things? And at the end of it all, this is a powerful conclusion. Listen, he's in the hall of faith. You're probably going to see him in heaven. It's going to be a little weird the first time you shake his hand. Oh, you're the guy who, uh, oh, huh. We're supposed to see that if God can do what? Through who? If God can do this amazing deliverance and victory through Him, then God can do what through you? You see that connection? Man, if by Jephthah's faith God could do this, then through my faith, even though I'm a fool and I've screwed up, and I've, He can do unbelievable things. I think it's a, good, it's a good time to respond in prayer right now because... In Jephthah, we see God's mercy toward Israel and toward us when we're fools, but we also see the power of faith. And it's time now for us to close our eyes and to go into His presence, to Him alone, 
as is. And it's time now to bring to Him our failure, to bring to Him our weakness, to bring to Him our foolishness, to ask Him to bless and increase our faith. Let's close our eyes together. Let's bow our hearts. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful that You put stories in the Scripture of people who are sinful. What a portrait of your grace to use a man like this. To choose to define him as a man of faith in the New Testament. What a portrait of grace for sinners. The most reprehensible sinners. But Lord, help us to heed the warning. Lord, we bring any area into our, in our life that is displeasing to you, that is causing you to be angry, that is violating your word. We bring it all into your presence right now with truly repentant hearts. Father, for the foolish and things we've done in the past, for the moments of greatest failure, show us that we are still loved by you, accepted by you. Father, we ask that you would increase our faith and show us what it means to put one foot in front of the other and convince us that if you can do this through him, you can do astonishing things through us. Only let us walk by faith. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen.